I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. After the 2018 midterm elections, uh, Democrats took control of the House of Representatives and divided government has reemerged in Washington. That may bring a host of constitutional issues, including is the acting attorney general's appointment consistent with the Constitution or with federal statutes? If Congress thinks it isn't, what can it do about it? What if Congress tries to subpoena the uh, acting attorney general or the special counsel? And what has the Supreme Court said about Congress's investigatory powers, about Congress's power to oversee the executive branch? Joining us to discuss these pressing constitutional questions are two of America's leading constitutional scholars and historians. Stephen Vladek is A. Dalton Cross, professor of law at the University of Texas School of Law. He's co-editor-in-chief of Just Security, a senior contributor to Lawfare, co-host of the National Security Law Podcast with CNN legal analyst. He co-wrote the Constitution Center's Interactive Constitution Explainers on the Constitution, on the Commander-in-Chief Clause of Article 2 and the Declare War Clause of Article 1 with Michael Ramsey, and those might be good places to start your homework. Steve, thank you so much for joining. Thanks, Jeff. Great to be with you. And Gregory Wiener is a political scientist and associate professor of political science at Assumption College. He is author of the spectacular book Madison's Metronome, The Constitution, Majority Rule, and the Tempo of American Politics. Dear We the People listeners, I want you to read Greg's book because it changed the way I thought and understood uh, Madison's understanding of the need for slow, reasoned majority rule over time, and I know you will learn as much from it as I did. Gregory is going to join us at the Constitution Center soon for our Madisonian Commission's exploration of what Madison would think of American democracy today. Greg, I can't wait to uh, meet you in person, and welcome to the We the People podcast. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to it as well. Great. Okay, let's jump right in with the appointment of the Assistant Attorney General. Steve, you wrote a piece in the New York Times recently. Uh, the headline was Whitaker may be a bad choice, but he's a legal one. And you were responding to arguments that the appointment may have violated the Appointments Clause of Article 2. And you noted, uh, among other things, an 1898 decision, United States versus e. Eaton, in which the Supreme Court rejected the argument that only a principal officer confirmed by the Senate can temporarily fill the shoes of another principal officer. Walk us back. Tell us what Article 2 says, uh, why the Eaton case said that uh, you don't need Senate confirmation uh, to serve. Um, as uh, acting attorney general and uh, why you believe the constitutional arguments against Whitaker's appointment are not convincing. Sure. I mean, so Article 2's appointments clause um, creates a distinction that the Supreme Court has basically relied upon for really the better part of a century now between three categories of people who work in the executive branch. Um, at the bottom, you just have ordinary employees, and the Constitution has very little to say about how they're chosen, how they're supervised, how they're fired. And then the Appointments Clause distinguishes between what we now call principal officers. So think about like the attorney general, other cabinet heads, heads of independent agencies and inferior officers. Um, and the rules are different with regard to how those individuals are both appointed and how they can be supervised and removed. Um, ever since Chief Justice Taft's opinion for the Supreme Court in Myers versus United States in 1926, um, the Supreme Court has taken the position that if you're a principal officer, you can only be chosen um, by presidential nomination and Senate confirmation. 
and you must serve at the pleasure of the president. So the argument is that because the attorney general is a principal officer, someone who temporarily exercises the functions of the attorney general must also be a principal officer, must also therefore have been Senate confirmed. Um, the, as, as you mentioned, Jeff, the Supreme Court in the one case where it's really even considered a similar question, the Eaton case from the 1890s, um, reached a different conclusion. Now, that was a very factually distinct case. That was about uh, a, a vacancy or temporary disability on the part of our consul to Siam, uh, modern-day Thailand. Um, but the court basically said there that someone who is an inferior officer to begin with and who is only temporarily exercising the duties of a principal officer while the principal office is vacant or the principal officer is disabled is still an inferior officer and therefore doesn't have to be confirmed by the Senate. Um, and the Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel reaffirmed this conclusion in a 2003 opinion. So my basic sort of reaction to all of this is not only that it's there, but that it's right. Um, that the alternative rule where even a temporary holder of a, of a principal office had to be Senate confirmed, Jeff, it would give the Senate the power to strangle the executive branch because the Senate could simply refuse to confirm anyone to a Senate-confirmed position in a relevant agency, and the president would be powerless to name anybody even on an acting basis to direct that agency. Um, of course, that's not the situation we have here. There are other Justice Department officials who have been confirmed by the Senate, starting with Deputy Attorney General Rosenstein, uh, Solicitor General Francisco. But at least as a matter of constitutional law, I don't think the Appointments Clause requires those people to go first. Um, and so the basic gist of, of my view um, is that as long as it's temporary, and I think there's a separate fight about what that means, um, the president has the power as long as Congress has authorized it to temporarily name someone who has not been confirmed by the Senate um, to nevertheless exercise the functions of a principal office on a temporary basis. Uh, Greg, the ar leading argument on the other side was made by my brother-in-law, Neil Katyal, and George Conway in the New York Times. The uh, headline of that piece was Trump's appointment of the acting attorney general is unconstitutional. And Neil and George Conway relied in particular on a concurring opinion by Justice Clarence Thomas in a recent case where the Supreme Court examined the question of whether the general counsel of the National Labor Relations Board was lawfully appointed to his job without Senate confirmation. And Justice Thomas said that the Appointments Clause would not have allowed the appointment because the officer was a principal officer and the Constitution's drafters recognized the serious risk for abuse and corruption posed by permitting one person to fill every office in government. Uh, are you persuaded by uh, uh, the argument of uh, Neil and George Conway, or do you agree with Steve? Well, I, I'm I'm uh, mostly persuaded by the argument that it, it is unconstitutional, and the the reason for that is uh, several fold. One is that we're talking about a much higher ranking officer than has been tested before the courts, and certainly then, as Steve mentioned, it was was at stake in the Eaton case. Um, I, I certainly agree that that requiring a um, someone in this situation who's serving temporarily to be Senate confirmed would give the Senate a great deal of power over the executive, but I think that was intended. So I think, for example, had Democrats taken over the Senate, one of the great controls on uh, President Trump firing uh, Attorney General Sessions or requesting his resignation would have been the difficulty of confirming a replacement. So I'm I'm not terribly comfortable with taking that power, uh, with taking that source of influence uh, away. I think the Senate was intended to have that that degree of influence over executive appointments. Remember that this is a joint power between the executive and the and the. Uh, 
uh, in the Senate. And there's there's no question in my mind that what we're talking about is a principal officer. Now, I think what, what I where I think Steve is certainly correct on in his op-ed is that Congress has delegated this this uh, authority to the executive branch and designated certain officers as as inferior in, in principle, particularly in the a, a law that was passed in, if memory serves, in 1998. I, I'm less sanguine about whether Congress was entitled to to make that distinction, to to delegate that degree of authority. Many thanks for that. Um, that raises the statutory question, and and uh, Neil, who's been busy with his op-eds, has another piece recently in the Washington Post uh, saying the rules are clear. Whitaker can't supervise Mueller's investigation, and he argues that even if you think that Whitaker's appointment is not unconstitutional, although he believes it is, then it violates the special counsel rules, which Neil says that he helped to draft, because uh, those rules presume that the special counsel will be supervised by a principal officer. So even if Whitaker is an inferior officer who doesn't need Senate confirmation to serve as acting AG, Catchell argues the special counsel rules require that Mueller be supervised by a principal officer. Steve, what do you think of that argument? I mean, I think I think with with all respect to my friend Neil, I think it proves too much. I mean, by that logic, you could never have someone like the special counsel be supervised during any vacancy, no matter how justifiable in a principal office, because there'd be at least some moment where the principal office was vacant and where the acting office holder hadn't been confirmed by the Senate. I guess, you know, my reaction is to all of this is that I think it's a lot of legal maneuvering because there's widespread agreement, even among those who disagree on the constitutional analysis, that this is a very troubling appointment, that it's a dangerous appointment, that it shows a lot of disrespect for the rule of law. I guess the my problem with sort of the, the notion that even if his appointment is valid, the acting attorney general can't supervise the special counsel is, you know, that's a Justice Department regulation that doesn't anywhere distinguish between the attorney general and the acting attorney general. And Jeff, as you know, special counsel Mueller up until last week had been supervised by deputy attorney general Rosenstein in his capacity as acting attorney general. I don't see anything in the text of the regulation that suggests that one acting attorney general would be okay, but a different acting attorney general would not be. It seems to me the acting attorney general is either the acting attorney general or he isn't. Um, And, you know, you've already heard the constitutional arguments for and against that conclusion. I think there's also the statutory question that Neil and others have raised um, about whether the Vacancies Reform Act, the 1998 statute that authorized the president, at least purportedly to choose Mr. Whitaker, overrides the DOJ succession statute. Jeff, it's possible that the courts, you know, which may get this question sooner rather than later, um, are going to just engage in constitutional avoidance and read the relevant statutes to not even have to reach this, by all accounts, messy appointments clause question by holding that the relevant statutes didn't authorize President Trump to name Mr. Whitaker in the first place. I think that would make a lot of these messier arguments go away and it would kick the can really back to Congress and at least for the moment back to Deputy Attorney General Rosenstein. Gregory, your thoughts on the statutory question of whether Mueller has to be supervised by a principal officer as well as whether the Vacancy Reform Act itself might raise constitutional difficulties? I tend to agree with Steve on this. I think if he's there, he's there. I think there are there are reasonable 
uh, questions as he as we've we've already heard as as to whether he's uh, whether he needed to be confirmed. But uh, keeping in mind that those are DOJ regulations and they can be changed by the administration. They don't have any statutory authority. It seems to me that what we need to avoid is a flight from uh, constitutional politics to constitutional law. There, there's if Congress wants to assert itself institutionally here, there's plenty of room for it to do so. But I don't think the way to do that uh, is, is is to try to force things into the realm of law that are really uh, questions of, of politics. The other thing that I would add there is that it, we, we don't want a situation where a prosecutor of any stripe, whether they're prosecuting someone who's powerful or powerless, is exempt uh, functionally from supervision. There's a reason for political supervision of, of uh, those people, and it, it ultimately redounds to the benefit of, of individual liberty. Thank you so much for that. All right. Well, let us now turn uh, to the question of Congress's power to subpoena executive branch officials, including uh, possibly uh, former Attorney General Sessions, acting Attorney General Whitaker, or even the special counsel himself. Steve, give us a sense of what the Supreme Court has said about limits on the uh, congressional legislative power. And if you could, maybe th I'll just throw in a case that our great constitutional prep team found called McGrain versus Doherty from 1927. It was the Teapot Dome scandal. <laughs> Doherty was the brother of the former attorney general who refused to prosecute wrongdoers in the Teapot Dome scandal. Congress subpoenaed the brother. And the question was whether Congress had the power to do it since the investigation had nothing to do with the committee's legislative purpose. And the court upheld the contempt conviction uh, establishing a presumption that congressional subpoenas are okay as long as they do have a legislative purpose. So maybe we could start there and then take us off and running. Yeah, I mean, I would, Jeff, if you don't mind, I would actually frame the question in the other direction. You you asked what are the limits. I would start with what are the sources of, of Congress's power. And, Great. you know, I think McGrain versus Doherty is an increasingly important case in our con law canon. I've been teaching it for the last three or four years. And I think, you know, that more and more people will be rediscovering it in the coming weeks and months because it's the closest the Supreme Court has come to saying expressly what its practice throughout its history has been, which is to recognize that Congress doesn't just have legislative power under the Constitution, but that Congress also has oversight power under the Constitution, and that the so-called power of inquiry that the Supreme Court discussed at some length in McGrain versus Doherty um, is not limited to those matters on which Congress is either actively considering legislation or even Jeff could constitutionally consider legislation, that really the power of inquiry extends to the full sort of sweep of Congress's permissible constitutional function, a function that for our purposes includes oversight of the executive branch and, you know, although we're a long way away from it, includes the potential impeachment, not just of the president, but of other executive branch officials. And so McGrain stands for the proposition that as a threshold matter, as long as Congress can show um, some relevance to its oversight authority or its regulatory authority, Congress is allowed through appropriate process within each house and as the houses choose within each committee of each house um, to engage in that kind of coercive process, even toward um, executive branch officials. Now. Jeff, the harder question, I'm sure we're going to get into it, is what kinds of defenses or immunities, uh, what kinds of privileges or immunities, executive branch officials and other recipients of this kind of process, whether it's a subpoena for papers or a request to testify, um, uh, they, those folks might be entitled to. I think the key point for now is 
that's really where most of the focus is in these cases, not whether Congress has the authority ab initio to in, engage in these kinds of investigations and to demand testimony and relevant documents. Thank you so much for that. Yes, we will turn to the limits in a moment, but uh, framing the question in terms of the powers, Greg, you wrote a, a superb op-ed in the New York Times called Nancy Pelosi's first order of business should be to reclaim the power of the House. This is about much more than Trump. And you note, quoting Federalist 55, that the Constitution made Congress the subject of Article One for a reason, that the most substantial powers of national government are deline delineated there, restoring congressional power ultimately through legislation. Would, would both transcend and serve Democrats' partisan interests. Tell us about that argument, You know what you think of the Doherty case, and broadly how Congress can reclaim the powers of uh, the, the Constitution. Well, the, the argument in the op-ed was really a prudential argument that, that uh, the, the House needs to behave institutionally rather than a, in a partisan way. So that it, it, in, in addition to behaving or I should say part of behaving institutionally is not seeing itself as is operating in orbit around the presidency. So not not trying to fix every issue in relation to what does it mean for this president or the next presidential uh, election. So uh, it, it certainly has uh, the authority and one can argue the responsibility to investigate the administration. But if that's all it does, it's not going to do much to restore Congress to what it was intended to be, which is the center of the uh, of the constitutional uh, regime, so that 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 is a um, again that's a prudential argument. Not a, although it's a, it's a, also a constitutional one that 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 Congress's foremost job is to legislate. The the origins of the oversight power are, I, I suppose, uh, somewhat constitutionally uh, murky in so far as it's it's not delineated specifically anywhere in the Constitution. But it, but again, the Doherty case, as you mentioned, uh, McGrain v. Doherty does. Uh, interpret it quite broadly. I, I do think it is significant that that case uh, does say it has to have some relation to Congress's uh, constitutional functions, so that it can't just be a freewheeling power of investigation. Now, it, 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 one can argue that it interpret that case interprets the oversight power broadly enough that those are functionally equivalent. But I think the idea that it's got to be tied to some other constitutional function of Congress is uh, is quite important. Well, Steve, uh, you uh, wrote a piece in the Washington Post uh, on November 7th called What Would Happen If Trump Resists an Investigation by the Democratic House? There could be a major conflict and even a slow motion constitutional crisis. Recognizing that we writers don't always write our headlines, why don't you walk us through the arguments of that piece, which begin with the fact that the court in 1927 gave the House a power of inquiry over the executive branch, including the power to compel evidence. That's the Doherty report. And then you run through a bunch of subpoenas that the House might argue and a bunch of responses that the president might make, including claims of executive privilege. Why don't you walk us through that piece and uh, begin with the possibility that the Trump administration could defy a subpoena from Congress at some point? If it did uh, so, what do you think that subpoena would be and what would the administration's response be and how would the courts resolve it? Sure. I mean, so let, let's start at the beginning. I mean, so, right, the subpoena would be necessary, presumably, once the executive branch refused a voluntary request that someone testify or that particular documents be turned over, or if at the particular hearing, um, a witness that potentially refused to answer questions. Um, Jeff, it's not hard to imagine a whole range of topics that we might see subpoenas on, everything from um, the sort of background to some of the president's more controversial policies. 
uh, the family separation policy at the border, the move to add a question about the census, uh, about citizenship to the census, um, even the appointment of Mr. Whitaker as the acting attorney general, and perhaps even matters more personal to President Trump, uh, maybe a subpoena seeking disclosure of his tax returns. And then, of course, I think the fight would be um, whether the recipient of the subpoena had a valid basis for refusing to comply with it. Um, that could, of course, be litigated. Um, the House, unlike the Senate, does not have express authority to litigate in those contexts. But um, federal courts during both the Bush and Obama administrations recognized that it was appropriate for House committees that had issued duly issued subpoenas to litigate whether the whether a, a defense or response to those subpoenas was valid. So, Jeff, let's assume um, that a subpoena is issued, that it's valid on its face, um, and that the question is then whether the requested material is protected by executive privilege. Um, presumably, that could then be litigated, and a federal court could decide whether the privilege claim was valid or invalid. Um, and in a world in which the federal court says the privilege claim is invalid, the question would then be, would the president authorize the individual to comply, or would he order them to defy the subpoena? If you order them to defy the subpoena, Congress's remedy at that point um, is to hold the individual, the recipient of the subpoena, in contempt for refusing to comply with the subpoena. The, where, that's where things get tricky, because Congress's mechanisms for enforcing a contempt citation, um, one of them is the sort of old school lock, lock the recipient up in the old Capitol jail, which doesn't <laughs> exist anymore, um, until they comply or until the end of that session of Congress, whichever comes first. Jeff, the other more modern version, the statute that's been on the book since 1857, is to refer the contemnor, the individual who's been held in contempt, to the Justice Department for criminal prosecution. And I think that's where we can see a real problem, because it's not hard to imagine that the Justice Department would be in no hurry to prosecute a member of the executive branch for contempt for refusing to comply with the subpoena from Congress if the president himself was the reason why the individual in question didn't comply. So that's that's to me where we could reach this kind of messy, slow motion constitutional crisis where Congress's only mechanism is to refer the contempt citation to the executive branch or to try to find some way to resuscitate the long dormant practice of what's called inherent contempt, um, where the Capitol Police would literally arrest the contemnor. I'm not sure that's healthy, um, even if it's, you know, even if it would make for good editorial copy. Uh, wow, thanks for those great uh, thoughts. Greg, um, maybe, uh, you know, some history of Congress trying to enforce its contempt uh, powers. I'd love to hear more about the Capitol jail as well as the, the uh, inherent uh, contempt power over that wonderful word, the contemnor. And in the course of that, maybe some more words about executive privilege in the, in the U.S. v. Nixon case where the court rejected an executive privilege claim when the president was trying to resist a subpoena issued by a court rather than Congress. Sure. Executive privilege goes back to the the uh, is, again, uh, one of those constitutional constructions. It's not written into the Constitution, but that goes uh, all, all the way back to the beginning. That's that's uh, understood to be sort of part of the nature of the office that the president has some need for. Uh, and we'll get to this in a minute in the U.S. v. Nixon case for for confidential advice from from his or her. Uh, staff. Uh, the, the, the classical uh, early case of this is in 1796, the House demanded documents from the Washington administration on the treaty that uh, John Jay had just concluded with Great Britain. Uh, and uh, uh, President Washington concluded that the House had no authority over the treaty and 
as he provided the documents to the Senate, but not to the uh, but not to the House. The um, the Supreme Court, the, the closest the Supreme Court has, has gotten to this issue, is, again, as is, is, is you indicated, is the I think is the U.S. v. Nixon case in which it, re- it explicitly recognized that ex- executive privilege existed, but said that a generalized claim of executive privilege, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, couldn't overcome a specific need for evidence in a, in a criminal case. Um, I think we are on, I, I think assertions of executive privilege, uh, in, in my view, and I'm, I'm speaking to, to my view as a political theorist or a scholar of the founding, not as a constitutional, uh, not in terms of the, what the constitutional law says. Uh, I, I think we're on very dicey ground here. Uh, I, I tend much more toward the view of uh, the, the great constitutional scholar Raoul Berger, who said that executive privilege was was a myth, mm-hmm. uh, that this has to be read into the nature of the of the office uh, in much in much the same way we would read in a, an attorney client privilege or a, or some other sort of uh, privilege. And, and uh, um, I, I think again, it's 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 very hard to get uh, out of there in any in any uh, meaningful originalist way to me. Now, um, l- let me make one other uh, point with respect to this, which is that I think Steve is right that this would get over to the to the courts, and in a sense, that's appropriate, uh, and and might in fact lead to a crisis of the Justice Department declining to to prosecute a, a case that's been referred to it. But we ought not forget the political weapons that that particularly the House has. So uh, let me just quote to you Federalist Fifty Eight. Uh, uh, Madison says there in Federalist 58 that the power over the purse is the most complete and effectual weapon with which any constitution can arm the immediate representatives of the people for obtaining a redress of every grievance, he says, and for carrying into effect every just and salutary measure. So I, what, what he means there is that the power of the purse, which is the, the which is derived from the fact that the power of taxation originates in the House, is that um, – uh, the control, the unique control the House has over the finances of the national government, create leverage over every other facet of policy if the House is willing to behave institutionally rather than in a partisan way to use it. So I think the House has ample weapons with which to make its will uh, felt short of a, a uh, prosecution for contempt. And that that's what in the, the New York Times op-ed that you referenced before, that that's what I was hoping the uh, the House would be willing to use. Steve, the Greg's mention of the power of the purse, of course, calls to mind Acting Attorney General Whitaker's suggestion that uh, the Justice Department could starve the Mueller investigation by defunding it. Could Congress respond by restoring funding to the investigation, talk more about the power of the purse, and then take us into more recent contempt uh, battles between the executive branch and Congress, in particular, the uh, conflict in the summer of 2012 when Attorney General Holder refused to testify in conjunction with the so-called Fast and Furious uh, operation, and the DOJ refused to pursue a contempt prosecution against an executive branch official when the president invoked executive privilege. Sure. I mean, so so starting with the, I mean, I think it's exactly right that the House will have political weapons available to it to try to make it painful for the president or those you know who are subordinate to him in the executive branch to resist a duly issued subpoena on the far side of a judicial ruling that there was no valid privilege or immunity to assert from compliance. Jeff, I think where things get tricky 
is where you run into the separation of parties instead of the separation of powers, where the House is limited in what it can do by itself, as opposed to what it would need the Senate's help for. And it's not hard to imagine, you know, whatever happens in Florida, that the Republican controlled Senate is going to be nowhere near in as much of a hurry as the House is going to be to take the kind of, you know, bicameral actions, um, whether it comes to stripping funding, um, whether it comes to, you know, other kinds of legislation. I think the better question is whether there are must pass bills where the House, as opposed to needing the Senate's consent, could effectively use its veto power um, as a political lever against the president. For example, spending bills, um, you know, the I think there's a bill coming up that with regard to raising the debt ceiling. Um, that's where I think you could see those political pressures being brought to bear. So with regard to Holder, I mean, we've had two major um, examples of subpoena fights um, really in the last decade. The, the first one actually involved um, former White House uh, counsel Josh Bolton um, and uh, Harriet Myers, um, deputy White House counsel um, during the Bush administration over the um, allegedly politically motivated firing of U.S. attorneys, where both Mr. Bolton and Ms. Myers were held in contempt by the House Judiciary Committee. There was litigation over whether they had a valid executive privilege claim. The court said no. Um, that case actually sort of fell apart on appeal because it was right at the end of the Bush administration. And basically a deal was made during the transition to the Obama administration that effectively mooted the dispute. The D.C. Circuit ultimately dismissed um, the appeal. The Holder example um, is the more recent one um, after, you know, per, uh, the, after basically a widespread view that, that Attorney General Holder had been insufficiently forthcoming in turning over documents um, to the House of Representatives. Um, he was held in contempt by the House of Representatives, um, both civil and uh, criminal contempt. There was a, a, a referral to the Justice Department. Um, there was a civil contempt vote that basically allowed the House Committee on Oversight and Government Reform to go to court. Um, and that litigation, believe it or not, is also still pending. So. <laughs> I guess, you know, one reaction to all of this um, is that the litigation in these cases tends to go pretty slowly um, and that, you know, even though I have faith that the courts would eventually sort out the privilege claims, all the while you would have non-compliance as the status quo um, and you'd have really, you know, it being much more a debate over the political levers that the House or its committees could use to compel some degree of cooperation from the executive branch far more than the legal levers, because as both the 2008 case and the Holder case suggest, the legal levers can really be slow. Um, and that may be the biggest obstacle to those being effective. We may have an intervening presidential and congressional election right before those are ever ultimately decided by the Supreme Court. Many thanks for that. Uh, Greg, your response to those interesting points. First, that the legal levers are slow, as both the 2008 Bolton and Myers and the 2012 Holder cases show. And then more broadly, uh, do you have faith that there is a bipartisan ability for both parties to exercise the congressional oversight powers that both you and some uh, scholars on the other side think are necessary or in a partisan and polarized age, is the House simply unable to exercise its constitutional oversight functions? I think it's exactly right that the 
legal levers are slow. And I, I, it, I think it's meant to be that way. And it's also meant to be the case that the political levers are more available and, and perhaps more potent. So I, I think we have a tendency, as I indicated before, to flee from politics to law because law seems to provide more say, emphasis on seems to provide more precise uh, and definitive answers, whereas politics requires more uh, judgment, which we tend to, I, I think, uh, needlessly to fear. Uh, the, the, the point about the intervening election that Steve made is particularly important because ultimately the political levers are superintended by public opinion, which in a republic, of course, is the final, uh, the final authority over these things. In terms of whether I have faith in, in the uh, – I take your question to mean is there a bipartisan capacity to act institutionally rather than in a partisan way? Mm. And the answer is I, I do not have that faith now. But I do have, uh, let me say, as Lincoln said, ultimate confidence or patient confidence in the ultimate justice of the people. Uh, I mean, I do have confidence in the in the, the, the basic workings of the regime. And, uh, you know, one of the I, I mentioned in the op-ed that one of the great ironies of American political uh, development is that Madison was both the great theorist of the separation of powers and of the American party system. So in a sense, we've never had pure institutional loyalty, uh, pure institutional as opposed to partisan uh, loyalty. On the other hand, as late as 1887, you have Woodrow Wilson complaining of, of uh, what he, in the title of his famous book, Congressional Government in the United States. So, uh, so we, we do have uh, examples of this, and all that is required for Congress to behave institutionally is for mem- its members to care about their own power uh, is their their uh, first and foremost interest, and that that to me is the interesting question: is at, at what point did members of Congress start seeking office for uh, for other reasons, whatever one may believe they uh, they are? I tend personally not to believe the corruption motive as much as as it's, as it's popularly believed. Um, but but clearly, members of Congress, if in fact it's the case that they're unwilling to defend their own power, are seeking office for motives other than power, which is. Uh, in Madisonian terms, is unthinkable. Uh, Steve, what might an example of institutional action look like? There are proposals by Senators Chris Coons and others to pass legislation protecting the special counsel from being fired, but uh, uh, members on the other side argued that that would be unconstitutional because Morrison versus Olson, the Supreme Court case upholding the independent counsel, uh, was wrongly decided, and the president's power to fire shouldn't be constrained. W- might, might, might Congress assert itself if uh, Mueller it, it wanted to issue a report, the acting attorney general tried to suppress it, and Congress tried to subpoena the report? Or what do you think is the most likely example of institutional action, and how would it be resolved? Well, I mean, I think, Jeff, you know, we can hope for legislation, and the, the bills to protect special counsel Mueller are a good example um, you know, back in April, the Senate Judiciary Committee actually passed that bill out of committee on a bipartisan 14 to 7 vote. So there are some Republicans who objected to legislation on constitutional grounds, but I think there are actually enough in both chambers to pass it. I think the problem is that Senator, Senate Majority Leader McConnell has said he won't bring it to the floor because he thinks it's unnecessary. And so we're back to the point where, you know, the real leverage with regard to legislation is only with respect to those bills that are so-called must-pass bills, where presumably you could try to tack on things like the Mueller protection legislation as an amendment. I think the bigger point, and I think this is why the midterms were potentially so important, is that 
you know, even if the president, even if Congress, um, and here I think more specifically the House, is hamstrung by, you know, year-long debates over executive privilege, um, Congress is free, of course, to subpoena people who wouldn't invoke privilege, who want to testify. So imagine a scenario where the special counsel is fired with or without this legislation in place to protect him. Um, I think the very first subpoena we would see from the 116th House would be a subpoena to special counsel Mueller to testify. And I think he would happily accept and respond. So, you know, I think what what we're looking for is exactly as as we've been discussing, it's really about how the political pieces are going to fit together with the legal pieces. Um, and it's going to be about sort of the order in which things happen. Um, and Congress, I think, is going to have, you know, not just the subpoena power, but Congress is going to have the ability to sort of not pass, you know, must pass legislation, not fund the federal government if it really gets that extreme to compel at least some modicum of compliance from the Trump administration. Jeff, I think where the rubber will hit the road is, you know, to what extent the new Democratic majority in the House is unified on these issues um, and whether there are going to be some substantive topics where the Republicans are able to peel away enough votes from the House Democrats to get legislation through even without perhaps some of these amendments or to resist some of these leveraging mechanisms. Greg, if you were designing bipartisan institutionalist legislation that would allow Congress to assert its constitutional prerogatives, and you can imagine being co-sponsored by Ben Sass and Chris Coons in, in, in the Senate and maybe Justin Amash, Zoe Lofgren in the House, what would the legislation look like? Sure. Do you mean with respect to oversight? Yes, with respect to oversight. Or, or yes. Yeah. Um, well, I, th- I think I'm not sure it would take necessarily legislative form, but it, but it certainly might in a in a contempt referral or 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 an authorization for a contempt referral or or something like that. I'm I'm actually not terribly comfortable with the idea of protecting Mueller legislatively, uh, and the reason for that is that as I indicated before, there, there's a reason we have political sort of civilian supervision of of. Uh, of prosecutors, which I think ultimately benefits the powerless along with the along with the powerful. So I think it, it might be taking less a legislative form than than um, committees, majorities, minorities, and committees working together uh, to in, in reaction to claims of executive privilege and so forth. Which, by the way, there's some record of doing. I mean, the, the Senator Grassley is 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 certainly in the, on the Senate side has has been known for working in a in a bipartisan fashion on oversight, and there there are examples on the uh, on the Democratic side uh, as as well. So. Um, uh, and there, by the way, there are any number of other issues where where you would expect Congress's first instinct to be not a president of my party did or didn't say this, but rather this was my authority, not yours. Uh, Steve, your thoughts about what institutionalist action might look like, and then let's get into the uh, drama of kind yeah. of constitutional crisis. Uh, land that might materialize, as you suggested in your Washington Post piece, what what action or what subpoena or what uh, firing do you think could precipitate a really serious conflict and, and lead us through how it might be resolved? Well, I mean, I, I think Greg laid it out nicely. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a little surprised, Jeff, that we're not already there with regard to the sort of crossing the Rubicon. I mean, I had thought all along that removing Attorney General Sessions would be understood um, as, as I think I understood it, as a direct move against the special counsel investigation, I would have thought that would be the point, even if you hadn't thought until then, that 
passing the special counsel legislation was necessary became so. Clearly, we're not there yet. Um, you know, Jeff, there, in addition to subpoenas, in addition to oversight, in addition to funding, I mean, the other potential possibility here is that we see some of the moderate Republicans in the Senate um, start using their ability to block, for example, nominations um, as a way to try to exact yet further leverage over the president if we get to a point where they think he's crossed various lines. So, you know, right now, I think we're looking at maybe a 52-48 Senate, depending upon how the Florida recount turns out. You know, in that scenario, it would take three Republican senators um, to hold up judicial nominations, to hold up executive branch nominations, really to bring the president's entire agenda to a halt. And so I think we, you know, if we're really heading for, as I wrote in the in the Washington Post, a slow motion constitutional crisis, I think the folks who are going to be the most important to try to assert the institutional role of Congress in such a case aren't going to be the Democrats in the House. It's going to be, you know, what's left of moderate Republicans in the Senate who, whether on a case by case basis or perhaps even by declaring their independence and potentially caucusing with the Democrats, could radically shift the balance of power um, in a means that would give you know Congress much more leverage over the president. It hasn't happened yet, Jeff. I don't think it's going to happen tomorrow. But you know, I think that to me would be the last you know sort of safety valve um, before I'd really start to be worried about the power the president would be able to exercise. Greg, what kind of action of the president do you think it would take to impel moderate Republicans to caucus with Democrats over nominations to check him? The, the firing of the special counsel, the refusal to issue the report, you know, what would it take? And then take us back to history and give us examples of congressional executive clashes in the past of similar magnitude and tell us how they've been resolved. Yeah, the uh, I, I do think firing the special counsel um, I'm reluctant to say it would do it. I'm, I'm willing to say that if, if that wouldn't do it, I don't know what would. I mean, I, that, that is, as Steve said, would be the Rubicon. Uh, so I, I think that might trigger it. The only thing I would add there is that to the extent there's a role for the House to play here, it won't simply be Republicans peeling off. The question will be whether the whether House Democrats had been sufficiently cooperative on on uh, legislative matters that they get some cooperation in turn on on uh, oversight. So there's some some complicated incentives there. Um, th- I, I suppose the the greatest uh, um, example here would be the uh, would be Nixon, the U.S. v. Nixon. Although that's a that's a prosecutor requesting information rather than rather than Congress. The Supreme Court has not really tested the extent of congressional uh, oversight power. It's mostly been in the in the lower courts. Uh, but I think there's an instructive lesson there, which is that the system worked. And so we, we tend to, I, I, think, I think Steve is exactly right that we could be headed for a slow motion constitutional crisis, but it's only a crisis if the levers that we have available to us don't work. And the, the reason they wouldn't work is if, uh, again, there's, there's the, the partisan instinct is so strong that people are unwilling to behave institutionally and, and constitutionally. And that, again, would be a, uh, ultimately a question of, of uh, public opinion. I, I think if, if, the, if the country is so, uh, I don't think it is, I think the election showed that, but if the country is so bitterly divided uh, that it can't, uh, sort of can't compute uh, these sorts of these sorts of conflicts, then I think we've got bigger constitutional uh, bigger constitutional problems. 
Steve, what would be an example of the scenario Greg describes where there's a breaking of norms or laws and yet Congress refuses to react institutionally because of partisan divisions? Well, imagine a scenario where, for example, the special counsel were to indict, um, let's just go all the way there and say Donald Trump Jr. um, and the president were to turn around the next day and pardon his son. Um, That to me, I think, would be a pretty dramatic moment um, and whatever folks might think about the pardon, I mean, I think another Jeff old Supreme Court case that doesn't get read enough these days is um, a 1926 decision called ex- or 1925, I'm sorry, decision called ex parte Grossman, where Chief Justice and former President William Howard Taft um, wrote about concerns with regard to potential presidential abuse of the pardon power. And Taft was quite explicit that the pardon power could surely be abused but that it's not the court, you know, it, it won't be the court's job in that circumstance to supervise the abuses by reviewing the validity of the pardons. It would be the Congress's job at that point to constrain abusive pardons through impeachment. Um, and, you know, it's just it's very hard for me to imagine in our current political environment, even if a lot more comes out about the president than is currently known, or even if he engages in far more, I think, rule of law threatening actions than he has to date. I, I don't see a scenario where there are going to be, you know, two thirds of the Senate, even if the House is willing to impeach, that would remove the president. And I think that's, you know, the that's the crisis that we are potentially heading for if things really do get out of hand. Now, I don't want to be a, a sort of a, a, a Cassandra here. I mean, I think it's possible that, you know, this is all just people fearing for the worst and that we're not going to get there. Um, but that's, you know, that's where I think you could see the political division of the country getting in the way of the structural mechanisms that the founders intended to operate and protect us in such a case. Thanks so much for that. And thank you, Steve, for saying the magic word, which is William Howard Taft. It's so much (laughs) fun on these podcasts to find out that there are hidden Taft opinions waiting to inform us on a recent podcast with Richard Epstein and Adam Liptak. We learned that Taft wrote a crucial case about libel law, and now we are going to read the Grossman case, Dear We the People listeners, about the pardon power. Greg, uh, what is your scenario of the sort of constitutional crisis scenario Steve just gave us? Uh, the president pardoning his son. Uh, do you have another one which might trigger a crisis? I was actually going to go to the same place, which is an abuse of the of the pardon power. Um, but but I, I think the the key here is the the again the political supervision. Uh, I, I mean, I, I suppose if we're going to go sort of if we're going to go the all the way scenario, we could we could imagine the uh, the the president pardoning himself, um, which is a sort of sort of raises separate constitutional and, and legal questions. Um, but but again, I, I think we're, we, we just can't avoid the, the political, the fundamental political issue, which is that if public opinion is incapable of superintending that kind of abuse, the president pardoning it his uh, son the day after an indictment, then we simply have much bigger constitutional problems than the pardon, uh, the pardon itself. Uh, one more round of these uh, hypotheticals, which may soon not be hypotheticals, take us to another uh, possible trigger for a, a constitutional crisis. Well, I mean, you know, separate from, I mean, I think the pardon power is one possibility. Um, I think a scenario where, you know, the the president orders um, the acting attorney general to fire the special counsel, like a repeat of the Saturday Night Massacre, where various DOJ officials resign before firing him and then he's fired. Um, you know, we've seen... Jeff, obviously, um, some 
troubling moves, I think, against the press from this White House, you know, in the last couple of weeks. I think CNN filed a lawsuit today about the revocation of, of Jim Acosta's hard pass. Um, I guess, you know, the it's hard to imagine, but like if the president were to deploy the military domestically, um, right, in response to political protests, if the president were to, you know, um, try to stir up doubt about, you know, what otherwise seem to be clearly legitimate election results. I mean, I think it's unfortunately increasingly easy to dream up what really should have been fantastical hypotheticals about threats to the rule of law. And I think Greg is right. I mean, I think the the key point has always been that the way the Constitution is designed, the principal mechanism for constraining a president who is jeopardizing the rule of law is not the public and it's not the courts. It's the Congress of the United States. Um, And, you know, I just I as Greg said, I I don't know what is going to be the moment at which, you know, the Republican senators who have to date um, largely enabled the president to do whatever he wants by you know, not using their leverage with regard to nominations and other legislation. I don't know what the trigger for them would be where you they would, you know, say enough is enough, you know, this far, but no further. And I think it's, you know, I, I hope we never find out because it's scary to think about what would what it would mean when we got to that point. Greg, do you agree that the kind of examples Steve has just given, such as firing the special counsel, deploying the military or attacking the press might uh, require a bipartisan institutional response uh, from Congress? And if any of those came to pass, do you believe that Congress might, in fact, respond institutionally on a bipartisan basis? There's no question that it would require a bipartisan uh, res- an institutional response. Uh, as to whether it would, I, I think, unfortunately, we're, we're back to that uh, sort of first uh, principle of congressional scholarship, which is re-election, that, that the re-election motive is a pretty good predictor of congressional behavior. And until the president's behavior uh, starts to undermine both his own popularity and, and, and their own, I don't think we're going to see that many peeling off. I think that's what we, uh, I'm, I'm not a historian, but but I think in the, the Nixon era, I, I think the, the congressional support began to crumble when, the, when they began to pay a price themselves. Well, it is time for closing arguments in this absolutely fascinating debate. Uh, Steve, the first one is to you. What do you want to tell we the people listeners and also members of Congress about what their institutional responsibilities to check the president under the Constitution are? Well, so I think, I mean, the last thing I would say, Jeff, is we saw the president as early as the morning after Election Day um, threatening House Democrats and inventing this term presidential harassment to describe what to me looks like perfectly ordinary exercise of the House's oversight power. I, I think we ought to all be able to differentiate between investigations by the new House that look like they're simply meant to cause personal um, agita for the president and investigations that are actually consistent with the House's constitutional function to identify waste, fraud, or abuse in the executive branch, um, to supervise policy decisions by the executive branch um, and to ensure that executive branch officers are actually complying with their responsibilities to federal law and the Constitution. And I just have to say, you know, I fear that folks are going to have a very partisan reaction to these investigations, and I hope they don't, um, because I think we have increasingly run into trouble in our constitutional system across a range of topics from everything we've talked about on this episode to the war powers. Um, to other contexts where power has drifted to the executive branch 
whenever the same party has controlled Congress and the White House. Um, and I, for one, think that our country will function much better, wholly apart from who, which party is in charge of each branch, when we're back to a system that is more about the separation of powers and the separation of parties. To me, that's the best thing that happened on Election Day. Um, and, you know, divided government may seem inefficient, but I actually think it's the best way, at least for the moment, to achieve that, that founding ideal. Thank you so much for that. And Greg, the last word is to you. What would you say to We the People listeners and members of Congress about what their constitutional responsibilities to check the president are? Well, I'm glad you, you mentioned We the People listeners, because I think ultimately the, what we've got to do is educate public opinion about the importance of Congress and the importance of the separation of powers. When I talk uh, about this, I tend to hear a lot of people saying, I don't care how things get done, I just want things to get done. And that is a very constitutionally problematic uh, view. I, th I think uh, what members of Congress need to do is respond as members of Congress, not as members of a party. That would include, by the way, not being intimidated when President Trump threatens what he called a warlike posture toward investigations, but it would also include not being baited by uh, by a threat like that. They should simply go about their business. But but part of going about their business simply has to be educating the public about why it matters that things go through Congress and not through the the presidency, particularly in a, as, as you were kind enough to mention my book about Madison before, particularly in a time, a period when time is so accelerated and we want things done so immediately that we're tempted to turn toward executive power and away from the slow, natural, deliberative processes of the legislature. Thank you so much, Greg Weiner and Steve Lodick, for an illuminating, deep, and unexpectedly uh, bipartisan discussion about Congress's institutional responsibilities under the Constitution to check the president. You have both illuminated our We the People listeners in the highest traditions of this podcast. Greg, Steve, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Jackie McDermott. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to We The People on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Recommend the show to your friends and colleagues and check out our companion podcast, Live at America's Town Hall. That's the audio feed of our town hall programs from Philadelphia and around the country, which unite thought leaders and scholars to discuss the constitutional issues of the day. Remember, always, dear We the People listeners, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional debate and education. It is urgently important to engage as many Americans in supporting the mission of the National Constitution Center as possible. Please, you must go to our website, check out the content, and become a member at any level. Go to constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.